In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Today, we'll study uh, chapter 18 from the Gospel of St. John, chapter 18. We'll study only half of it from verse 1 to verse 20. It is 40 verses. We'll take the first 20 verses. Chapter 18 and chapter 19 of the Gospel of St. John tell us the deeply moving story of the passion and the self-sacrificial death of our Lord Jesus Christ. And St. John in his Gospel, because he wrote it after Matthew, Mark, and Luke, so he doesn't repeat the events covered in the other Gospels, except if you want to add more details. Uh, and in these two chapters, 18 and 19, he actually locate the events of the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ and death in five settings, five settings. Three of them in chapter 18 and two in chapter 19. What are the three settings in chapter 18? The first setting, the garden, where our Lord Jesus Christ is arrested. And this from verse 1 to verse 12. Then the second scene, the house of Anas, the high priest, the father-in-law of Cleophas, from verse 13 to verse 27. The third scene, or setting the Roman Praetorium, the court of Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. Start from verse 28 and takes to chapter 19, verse 16. So the outline of the chapter, we can actually divide the chapter into seven sections. First section, betrayal and arrest in Gethsemane, from verse 1 to 11. Second section, before the high priest, Anas, from 12 to 14. Third section, Peter denies the Lord Jesus Christ, from verse 15 to 18. From 19 to 24, fourth section, Jesus questioned by Anas, the high priest. Then from verse 25 to 27, Peter denies two more times. From 28 to 38 in Pilate's court and the last two verses taking <coughs> the place of Barabbas. So let's read from verse 1. <coughs> when Jesus had spoken these words, you know chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. These five chapters have the last discourse of our Lord Jesus Christ. After he washed their feet in chapter 13, and give him his body and his blood, then he started to speak to them about the Holy Spirit. And he concluded this discourse 
by prayer, which, which is the intercessory prayer as our high priest in chapter 17. So when Jesus had spoken these words, the words in chapter 13, 14, 15, until 17, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kedron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. I told you before, you know, when he said, let us arise and go from here, this was in the middle of the discourse. So apparently he left the upper room and maybe he finished the discourse on the way to Gethsemane or there was a place there he sat with the disciples until he finished his prayer. Then they crossed the brook Kedron uh, to Gethsemane. So after our Lord Jesus Christ had finished his final guidance to the apostles and his prayer for them, now the time of his arrest, his trial, and his death was at hand. So they crossed the Kedron Valley to reach Mount of Olives. From the Gospel of St. Matthew and St. Luke, it was mentioned that the Mount of Olives, very close to where the town of Bethany was located. And we know also that the Lord Jesus Christ and the disciples were spending each night during the last week in Bethany. So, but here St. John, he did not actually describe the place by its name Gethsemane or the Mount of Olives. But St. John is the only gospel writer to mention garden. Garden. And this made the church father think why he called it garden. What theological reason might John have had in his mind to use the word garden? St. Cyril of Jerusalem believed that John is drawing our attention to the parallel that exists. He is trying to compare between the Garden of Eden and the Garden of Gethsemane. So in Eden, there was a struggle between Satan and Adam in the Garden of Eden. And now there is a struggle between Judas, the traitor, who was the tool of Satan, and Jesus, the new Adam, in the garden of the olive press. The fall of man, fall of Adam, began in the garden of Eden, with Adam's disobedience. Now, in this garden, the new Adam, our Lord Jesus Christ, will begin his defeat of Satan in the garden by his obedience. Adam disobeyed, but the new Adam obeyed. He yielded himself to the will of God the Father, and he accepted the cup that the Father has given him. He said, let it be not according to my will, 
but according to your will. So in the first garden, Adam disobeyed. In the second garden, Jesus obeyed, the new Adam. By the disobedience, Satan won the struggle. By the obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ, actually Satan lost. And the Lord Jesus Christ won the struggle and defeated Satan. St. Paul said, he obeyed unto death, even the death of the cross. Verse 2, And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. Judas, who betrayed him, in all the gospel accounts, whenever Judas is mentioned, he is always identified as the betrayer or as the traitor. And this place was a usual place where our Lord Jesus Christ and his disciples had often met. And Judas knew this. Judas knew very well this place. So having agreed to betray the Lord Jesus Christ, Judas had no doubt that he can find the Lord Jesus Christ and the disciples in his usual place. So this was one place where he would search for the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers, from the chief priests and Pharisees came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Here St. John did not tell us of the anguish of Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane, because as I told you, whatever the three uh, evangelists wrote, he did not repeat again. But he added a very useful information regarding Jesus' final instruction to the apostles and his prayer to God for them, as I told you from chapter 13 to chapter uh, 17. And now, this was the moment that Satan has been waiting for. Since the Lord Jesus Christ defeated him, in the temptation on the mountain, when Satan attempted to tempt the Lord Jesus Christ by the three trials, the new Adam. So now it is the right moment for Satan. This is what St. Luke called in his gospel the hour of darkness. The hour of darkness. And here I like to mention something Many people, when they try to calculate the three days and the three nights, when the Lord said, Jesus will be in the heart of the earth, three days and three nights. Many people fail to, to calculate three days and three nights. Of course, the common explanation is that part of the day 
is considered a whole day. So Friday is considered a whole day, Saturday and Sunday. But there is another interpretation, because if you read this verse carefully, the Lord Jesus Christ did not say Jesus will be or the Son of Man will be in the tomb. But he said that he will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. What he meant by the heart of the earth? Earth means the kings of the earth. Uh, as we say in Psalm 2, why the kings of the earth raged against you. This is the hour of darkness. So, if you want to calculate the three days and the three nights, it will be the three nights will be Thursday night to Friday morning, then Friday night to Saturday morning, then Saturday night to uh, Sunday morning. These are the three nights. Because that is the beginning of the hour of darkness when they arrested the Lord Jesus Christ. And the three days will be Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So here, here is actually a, another explanation for the three days and the three nights. And only St. John mentioned that Roman soldiers were involved in uh, the arrest of our Lord Jesus Christ. When he said, a detachment of troops. These troops are the Roman soldiers, because Israel did not have troops. So only St. John mentioned that Roman soldiers were involved in the arrest of our Lord Jesus Christ. They sent a large group, though we are not told how many, but Mark in chapter 14, verse 43, he said it was a great multitude. And they were armed with weapons, weapons, swords, clubs, according to other accounts. Evidently, they were expecting a fight. Why they were expecting a fight? I will explain. But also they came with torches to help them to see in the darkness. Why they ex expected a fight? Like the disciples, Jesus' enemies also expected him to try to be an earthly king. And if Jesus wants to be an earthly king, then he will have his own military. So they expected that the Lord Jesus Christ and his disciples would put up a stiff resistance. And maybe they, they have also the disciples in their expectation. They have weapons. That's why they came armed to arrest the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward willingly and said to them, Whom are you seeking? 
This foreknowledge is an indication of his divinity. And this a reoccurring theme in the Gospel of St. John. Jesus went for, forward, shows us that he is in, in full control of the unfolding event. He was not trying to run away or to escape or to hide. He went forward. He knew all that was about to come upon him and consequently was far removed from any intention of withdrawing himself from his destiny. He knew what will happen to him, but he did not run away or try to withdraw. So he was very and fully and clearly conscious of what is going to happen, and he went forward willingly. Adam in the garden, when he sinned, what did he do? He hid himself. But the new Adam, our Lord Jesus Christ, did not hide himself in the garden. And he did not stay till those that sought him came to him and found him. Willingly, he went forward to them. He went forth not to make his escape from them, but to meet them and make himself known unto them. And he asked them boldly, Whom are you seeking? This question, not out of ignorance, because he knew very well who they were seeking, nor he intended to deceive them and make his escape. Why he asked them, whom are you seeking? In order to show that he was not afraid of them and that they could not have known him nor have taken him had he not made himself known to them and offered himself to them which makes it appear clearly that he willingly apprehended by them, he was willingly apprehended by them and voluntarily suffered. He delivered himself, as we say in the divine liturgy, by his own will and by his authority alone. Knowing their intent, his conduct shows that he gave himself up to death willingly. No one forced him to give his life on the cross. Verse 5, they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas who betrayed him also stood with them. Judas stood with them. There is nothing recorded in the Gospel of John more than this sentence about Judas. He did not mention the case of betrayal, like Saint Luke. Like Luke in, in 20, chapter 22, verse 47, he said, Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near to Jesus to kiss him. So apparently, 
after Judas kissed the Lord Jesus Christ, then he fell back and rejoined the enemies and stood in the foreground, in the first row, with all the enemies. And the Lord told them, I am he. Verse 6, Now when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. There is nothing in the narrative to suggest that our Lord put forth miraculous power to cause this terror. But why they fell down? You know, I am is the name of God. When God appeared to Moses and Moses asked him about his name, he told him, I am who I am. So some biblical scholars say that the Jews who came from the chief high priest upon hearing the divine name I am prostrated themselves as was the custom. But if this interpretation is correct then what about the Roman soldiers? They certainly would not have fallen to the ground in reverence to divine name. That's why other scholars suggest that this is a demonstration of his divinity. When Jesus pronounced the divine name, like a flash of his divine, divine power was revealed and pushed those present, both the Romans and the Jews, back and knocked them to the ground. And there are actually some prophecies in the Old Testament about this incident. Like in Isaiah 28, verse 13, we read that they might go and fall backward and be broken and snared and caught. Another prophecy in Psalm 27, verse 2, when the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and foes, they stumbled and fell. And another prophecy in Psalm 35, verse 4. So, this, this was a demonstration of the divine power of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this tells us that our Lord Jesus Christ was in full charge of the event. At this moment, if he wanted to run away, he could have run away. But no, he came for this hour in particular. So, although he had the power to resist his enemies. He freely allowed them to take him as prisoner. Verse 7. Then he asked them again, Whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. St. John Chrysostom says he says again whom you seek what madness about the Jews 
His word threw them backward. Yet not even so did they turn. So St. John Chrysostom is saying, after they fell backward from his answer, when he said, I am he, they should reconsider their action. They should turn away and go back to the chief priest and tell them, we cannot arrest him. That's why he said, what madness. When they had learned that his power was so great, but again set themselves to the same attempt to arrest him. When therefore he had fulfilled all that was his, then he gave himself up willingly to their hand. He himself himself therefore gives them another opening, another uh, way to reconsider what they are about to do. But they repeat the same term of their warrant. They want to arrest the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth declaring his identity a second time. So he replied to them, verse 8, Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way. So the Lord told them, if you are coming to seek me, he reminded the officials that by their own acknowledgement, they are instructed to arrest none but Jesus only. They acknowledge this twice, that they came for Jesus of Nazareth. They did not say we came for Jesus of Nazareth and his disciples. That's why he told them, I have told you I am he. This he said signifying he was ready to deliver himself up into their hand, and which he did not with which he did with no fear and also with calmness. But he was concerned for his disciples. So as if he is telling them twice, you said you came for Jesus of Nazareth, not for my disciples. So let them go away. Maybe some of the Roman uh, uh, Roman soldiers, uh, not knowing the Lord Jesus Christ, maybe already they start to lay hand of the disciples, to arrest some of the disciples. So in any case, the disciples were exposed to danger. But our Lord Jesus Christ, our Good Shepherd, who himself goes forth to meet the danger, he shielded his flock from the danger. Jesus came to suffer for us. Therefore, it was not just and fair that they should suffer too. This shows and reveals the love of our Lord Jesus Christ to his disciples and his care for them. The Lord sought their freedom, fulfilling the prophecy that none of them would perish. This prophecy actually he mentioned in in chapter 17, the last chapter, uh, in verse 12, he said that none of them 
did not perish. That's why in chapter 18, verse 9, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke. Of those of whom you gave me, I have lost none. Of those, now Jesus speaking to the Father, of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. Uh, so now what happened in John 18 is a confirmation of the truth in John 17, verse 12, about this prophecy. Verse 10, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. The disciples by this time had gathered before Jesus' enemies and apparently thought that the time had come to fight to protect our Lord Jesus Christ, according to their own understanding. One of them drew his sword and cut off the ear of a servant of a high priest. St. John added details that no other gospel added. For example, we knew the name of the disciple from St. John, that it was Simon Peter. We knew the name of the servant Malchus from St. John. And we knew that it was the right ear also from St. John. So he added details here, no other gospel added. Peter said to the Lord Jesus Christ, I am willing to die for you. After he washed their feet and gave them the Eucharist, and when the Lord told them, one of you will, be, will deny me, Peter, uh, sorry, when the Lord said that all of you, you will leave me this night, Peter said, no, I am willing to uh, die for you. Then the Lord told him, no, you will deny me. So Peter here, uh, as he affirmed before his willing willingness to give his life for Jesus, that's why he was the first one to take his sword and cut off the ear of Malchus. He was acting quite boldly according to the human standards, keeping his commitment to the Lord. But his action was not commended. The Lord did not approve of his action. That's why in the first 11, in verse 11, Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me. So, the Lord rebuked Peter, telling him to put the sword in the sheath. St. Peter's action is one of opposition to what Jesus himself knew to be the will of the Father. The will of the Father that the Son suffer and dies. So, Peter, what he was doing was in opposition to the will of the Father. That's why he said, the cup which my Father has given me, shall I not drink it? And you can see there is tender trustfulness in this word. Yes, he will drink the cup of bitterness, 
the cup of our sins, but if this is the will of the Father, he will obey. And this actually an echo to the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. But as I told you, this prayer was not recorded in the Gospel of Saint John. Verse 12. Then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. This passage actually describes the first steps taken by the enemies of our Lord Jesus Christ to conduct the examination which was to issue in a judicial murder. So there, there was some steps. He has to go into trial in order to issue a judicial murder to get a, a decision or a resolution by killing the Lord Jesus Christ from the Roman governor Pontius Pilate. Therefore, to provide the basis on which the charge might be laid before Pilate and the Roman court. So they examined him first before the high priest in order to collect evidence, to collect the charges, to present it to Pilate and the Roman court. St. John told us they bound him. Why they bound him? Their concern was confirmed by Peter's act that Jesus of Nazareth is a dangerous character who stirs up his followers to rebellion. So when Peter took the sword, they said, yes, the followers of Jesus will start a rebellion and they will fight against us. That's why he must, Jesus must be properly secured and bound. Also, maybe their falling to the ground on meeting him impressed them. And they said among themselves, we need to use the utmost caution of arresting him. So the whole force is required to secure him. Verse 13, And they led him away to Anas first, for he was the father-in-law of Cleophas, who was high priest that year. The Lord Jesus Christ went through six trials, six trials, three religious trials and three civil trials. First, they took him to Anas, then before the Sanhedrin, then before Cleophas. So these are three religious tribes. Then they took him before Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate sent him to Herod, the governor of Galilee. Then Herod sent him back to Pontius Pilate. So the Lord actually was tried six times, three before the religious leaders, and three civil trials, two of them before Pontius Pilate 
and one in the middle before Herod. So they first took him to Amnas, who we are told was the father-in-law of Qiyafah, the high priest. And St. John is the only one of the four Gospels to include the information that Jesus was first taken to Anas. This was not mentioned in the other three Gospels, the father-in-law of the high priest Cleophas. But also in verse 19, in the same chapter, John called Anas the high priest. The high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples. So, who was the high priest? Anas had held the position of high priest from year 6 AD to year 15 AD. Then he was removed by the Roman governor Valerius Gratus. Although according to the law of the Torah, a high priest was supposed to hold his office for life. But the Roman governor removed him. Gratus removed him. Why? Because like other foreign commanders, they feared that a high priest who ruled too long would have too much influence with the people. So, he deposed Anas. But this deposing, however, deposing Anas did not to do much to limit his influence because many of the Jews and Israelites considered Anas to be the true high priest. According to the law, the high priest is for life. So they considered him the true high priest to be the rightful leader of the covenant people. And he remained in control through five of his sons and his son-in-law, Kiafas, who all held the office of high priest in subsequent years. So his five sons took the role of the high priest and also his son-in-law, Kiafas. But many biblical historians think that Anas was the real leader of the priestly Sadducees party, Sadduqiyin, and the prime motivator in the plot to kill Jesus. That's why St. John, in verse 14, he said, Now it was Qiyafa, his son-in-law, who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. One man should die for the people. Why John included that Jesus was talking to Anas? Actually to suggest that Anas was the real one 
uh, or the prime motivator in the plot against our Lord Jesus Christ. Also, taking Jesus to Anas allowed enough time for Qiyafa to assemble the members of the Sanhedrin, 72, one, to assemble them, and also to find false witnesses who would testify against the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was the high priest, the reigning high priest, in that year was Qiyafa, served as the president of the Sanhedrin. So Qiyafa will will took also the will, will take also the role of the chief prosecutor in the trial of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 15. And Simon Peter followed Jesus. And so did another disciple. Now the disciple, that disciple, the another disciple, was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. After Peter had been rebuked for his attempt to defend the Lord Jesus Christ, and after he had fled with the other disciples when the enemies arrested the Lord Jesus Christ. But Peter started to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, but at a distance to see what would happen to him. Who was the another disciple? It was the Apostle John, the author of this gospel. He frequently spoke of himself without mentioning his name. So, these two, who were friends and generally together, Peter and John, followed the Lord Jesus Christ to the house of Annas. John gained the access to the area where the trial was occurring because he knew the high priest. What about Peter? We read in verse 16, But Peter stood at the door outside. Then the other disciple, John, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to her who kept the door, the doorkeeper, and brought Peter in. So clearly, John arranged for Peter to be let into the courtyard. And this actually set the stage for Peter's denial, which is recorded in the following verses. Verse 17. Then the servant girl who kept the door, when John let Peter in, so she said to Peter, you are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. John records here the first, you know, Peter denied the Lord three times. He records in verse 17 the first of Peter's denials at this time. Other accounts wait <coughs> and tell the whole story of denials later. But no doubt they occurred from time to time. So the three denials did not happen in the same moment, same time. 
some event happened in between during the trial of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, St. John saying the first denial occurred toward the beginning of the trial. And he added that the maid was the doorkeeper. And it was called, as we read in verse 18, now the servants and officers who had made a fire of coals stood there, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves, and Peter stood with them and warmed himself. Jerusalem is more than 2,400 feet above the sea level and definitely can be very chilly in early springtime. And this was after midnight, so it was cold. Then an informal examination of the Lord Jesus Christ began. Verse 19. The high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. So he asked them two questions about his disciples and his doctrines. So Anas here is the real political power, as I told you. And he identified, John identified Anas as the high priest in verse 19. Also the guard called Anas the high priest when he slaps the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 22. So Anas probably had Jesus brought to his house, as I told you, to give Cleophas time to assemble the Sanhedrin court at a later hour. So he, he started starting the dialogue by asking him about his disciples. This was just a general question to be followed by a series of questions and his doctrine. Maybe also he was concerned about a rebellion caused by the disciples. That's why he asked about the disciples. And he, then he asked about the doctrine. It's clear from the context that Anas hoped that the Lord Jesus Christ would incriminate himself, would say something to help them to find a charge or accusation against him. Verse 20, Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet. And in secret, I have said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. So the Lord responded that his teaching had been done publicly in public places. The question of Anas implied some secret plot with the disciples. That's why the Lord said, no, I had nothing to hide. 
everybody heard my doctrine and my teaching. And now I have nothing new to tell you. They already knew my teaching. And you have no valid reason to ask me about my doctrine. So, the only possible motive that they asking about his doctrine to could, that they may find something to use against him. But the Lord insisted here on his rights and reproved the high priest for his unjust and an illegal manner of extorting a confession from him. As if he is telling him, your question is an ethical question. Your interrogation is unacceptable. If he had done wrong or taught untrue doctrine, it was easy to prove it because all the people knew it. And the course which he had a right to demand was that they should establish the charge by fair and indisputable evidence. So the Lord demanded, if you want to find accusation or a charge against me, this should be brought by fair and indisputable evidence. In other words, he, Jesus Christ insisted that justice should be done to him. He had been so open in his conduct that he could appeal to the vast multitude which had heard him as witness in his favor. That's why he told him, why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. This actually concludes our Bible study for tonight. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.